0: Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, life and the Trump presidency. And before we start this episode, I'd like to draw everyone's attention to our new Not the New York Times offer, which we're offering to encourage readers to subscribe to The Spectator's US edition, which is excellent. I edit it. Uh, And the reason we're running the Not the New York Times offer is because we are very unlike The New York Times. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the famous newspaper, uh, the most famous newspaper that America has recently hounded out one of its best editors uh, because the paper had published a slightly controversial article. Uh, The paper's staff and bizarrely many of its readers now demand total conformity of opinion in the opinion pages. We think that's very boring and we want to tell America that the spectator is different. We are a magazine, not a newspaper, and we take a very different approach to journalism. We've been around longer than the Times, in fact, 23 years longer to be precise, and we encourage our writers to disagree with each other. We want arguments and we want people to disagree. It makes for much better reading. We also try not to take ourselves too seriously, and unlike the Grey Lady, as the New York Times is known, we never confuse the serious with the dull. We're new to America, and we want Americans to know what we're all about which is why we're offering this special Not The New York Times offer with 50% off the normal price. If you go to spectator.us forward slash not NYT dash and you enter the code N-O-T-N-Y-T, you will get 50% off The Spectator's US edition. Please take up the offer. I'm joined today by Douglas Murray, who is associate editor of The Spectator and author of of several books, including most recently The Madness of Crowds. And we're going to be talking about President Trump's speech at Mount Rushmore. Now, Douglas, it seems to me that even an ardent Trumpist, and I know you're not an ardent Trumpist, but would struggle to say that Trump has had a good year in 2020. I think it looked as though re-election was almost inevitable, I'd say, in January. And now he's trailing behind very badly in the polls, He's looked out of sorts. He's looked disorientated by the COVID crisis and by the riots. But last weekend on Friday night, he gave a speech that, for a lot of people, put him back on track and set up perhaps a comeback story for him to win the election in November. Do you go that far?
1: Who knows what will happen between now and November. It's definitely a major moment in, I think, in the life of the republic. I I think not to overstate this, there is something very, very deep going on in America at the moment and it is something like a war on America's origins. And the left has been doing this for a long time. It's not a new thing. It's some decades in the coming, and it is a rewriting of the American past, not just to take in new historical knowledge or new perspectives. It's not that. It's become a war on everything to do with the origins of the United States of America. This includes the war on Columbus, the period in recent years where the left the radicals have shown they can find no break spots between taking down statues of confederates and taking down statues of the founding fathers. It's things like the New York Times 1619 project where they decide to basically shift the founding date of America more than a century earlier to the point at which the first slaves are brought in from Africa. And All of these things, I think, do something very fundamental. They shift the agreed-upon story, and you might say, holy places of America. This has been going on, and in recent weeks, I think it's reached a recent fever pitch. And by the way, I mean, it's worth remembering that, as I mentioned in my piece this week, that you know, a recent poll found that this isn't limited to statues, you know, something like 70% of self-described liberals in America say they would like the Constitution to be rewritten. Mm-hmm. If you don't agree on your founding fathers, don't agree when you were founded, don't think your founding documents should remain intact, what exactly is this thing America then? And that brings us to what Donald Trump did on Friday, which is that he did restate what America is. And... One other thing on that, just in case anyone thinks sort of overstating this divide that's emerged, it's worth remembering that CNN ahead of this speech goes to its correspondent, who says this evening, the president is going to be standing and speaking in front of images of two slave owners <laughs> on land stolen from Native Americans.
0: Yes, and also and- a carved... By somebody who had links to the KKK. <laughs>
1: so if Thomas Jefferson and George Washington are to be described on the main networks simply as slave owners, and if Mount Rushmore is simply to be described as stolen land, then this requires a restating of the fundamentals of the American Republic. And that's what President Trump attempted to do on Friday, to say, no, we will not have this past rewritten. Two things really to say. One is he gave a history lesson, and that was very important because I know that we live in an age when everyone thinks they know lots, but a lot of the people doing the pulling down clearly know very little about their own past. And he did a very succinct, very moving history lesson of why the four men on Mount Rushmore are there, why they entered the list of immortals. And the second thing he did was a tonal thing, which was to say that the people doing the pulling down, the people who are attacking at the root of the republic, believe you, the American people, are weak. And he said to them, they've got this wrong. You're strong. The American people are strong. This is an important thing, not just to try to make sure the history is put in a proper context, but to say, there is no need for the American people to be a weak, cringing people. We have a right to be proud of our history and our heritage. And that's what he tried to do.
0: Since 2016, we've heard a lot about nationalism, the rise of nationalism, and portrayed as a very sinister force in Trump and with Brexit too. And it seems to me that a lot of these populist movements that Trump and Brexit in a way represent are not so much nationalisms as as reactions to anti-nationalism. And that's what this speech was. Would you agree with that?
1: Uh, As you know, I don't like the word populist. Um, (laughs) I just think it means popular by somebody who's lost. Yeah, nationalism in the last few years... Well, nationalism has has different connotations wherever you take it, doesn't it? Uh, Let's be frank about this as well. The problem with nationalism is not international. Nobody seems to have much of a problem with nationalism in Africa. Nobody has that much of a problem with it in the Far East. Where do they have a problem with it? Europe. Let's get closer to it. They have a problem with it in Germany. Mm. And therefore, if we think that Germans can't be trusted with nationalism, we end up spilling this idea out, Europeans can't be trusted with nationalism. And now it's spilt out further, which is no Western country can be trusted with nationalism. I think it's an enormously reductive and dishonest play. But yes, there has been this movement in recent years. And I don't think there was anything nationalistic in the negative sense, certainly, about what President Trump did at Mount Rushmore. You think it was patriotic? It was patriotic. All this stuff plays, as I say, differently in different countries, doesn't it? But there was a very dishonest attempt by segments of the media in America to pretend he had done things he had not done. One figure in American political life, who may well be chosen as Joe Biden's running mate, pretended live on air that the president had used his speech to praise Confederates, which he hadn't done at any point. You you, you scour the text and you don't find that. So why are they saying this sort of stuff? Why are they making stuff up? Why is it that Max Boot in in the Washington Post writes a piece immediately afterwards saying, let's not kid ourselves. Everybody knows what Trump did is white supremacy. It's like, first of all, what is this everybody knows? Mm. Everybody at your dinner table agrees? Evan your family agrees Well, what is this and secondly as i say this issue that internationally it plays slightly differently i think there's no more harm in the american president doing what he did last week than there was in president macron saying last month nothing will come down in france we're not pulling down our statues and our monuments and our buildings mm. If President Macron can do that, why not President Trump? And I would go slightly further since no politician in Britain has properly risen to this occasion yet. Why not somebody in Britain? Why do we not have a politician in the UK willing to say, no, we don't want Churchill boxed up whenever there's a major event. No, we don't want to have to protect the cenotaph every time there's a protest. Yes. We haven't had it here. There's nothing bad or
0: nationalistic about saying that. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? It's not what someone's saying, it's who's saying it. That's the the way the media judges it. Yeah, it it would seem to be. I wonder, just on Trump quickly, I wonder if you think, to me it had one flaw, this very well-written speech, was that he was Mm -hmm. really doing what he did in 2016, which is saying, you know, the radical left is bringing carnage to America, Mm. and I'm the one standing in their way. Now, that worked as a message in 2016. Mm. I wonder if it works in 2020, because Mm. essentially what he's saying is, vote for Trump, to stop all the things that are happening under Trump happening.
1: Yes, and you could say that at this point it's rather clear that he has exacerbated the culture war that he uh, is opposed to, I mean, Mm. the the element of the culture war he's opposed to, that the radical left has been able to make some of the gains it's made in recent years because of Trump. That's a very plausible argument that you made there. One of the things that's happening, surely, is once Trump lays strong claim to all of these foundational issues in America, there's a certain type of person who doesn't want to support the founding of America because it would be to put yourself in the same political box as Trump. I mean, they don't want to in any situation. It's very dim politicking, but that's what a lot of people are doing, clearly. If Trump says something, we must be for the opposite. Mm. This is why so many people on the left and the right have deranged themselves in recent years.
0: One of the things he addressed in the speech was cancel culture. He used the term... And it's become a slightly hackneyed phrase, perhaps overused, I'm sure, by some uh, media institutions on the right. But we have a very good example of cancel culture at work this week in a letter signed by 150 writers to Harper's magazine. I should say that these writers are overwhelmingly liberal. Yes. And they go to almost sort of agonizing pains to say that they don't like Trump in the beginning of the letter. Mm. um, But they just want to stand up for free speech Mm. and free expression. And lo and behold, it's caused a huge backlash on Twitter. Have you been following this? I have. By the way, just a quick observation. You mentioned that the cancel culture
1: has already become hackneyed. I think we all have to watch out for the way in which things become hackneyed after weeks of usage. (laughs) Some people try to do this with woke. They say, no, no, it's boring. It's been done. Yes. This is a move uh, to try to shift the conversation away from things where you think your opponents are doing well. Yes. So when people say, oh, I've heard too much about cancel culture...
0: Yes, or you're being fragile, that's, it. that's another way. Yes, us. yeah.
1: So. It's a clever-ish political trick, not no. much more. Cancel culture does clearly exist, and there's been no better example of it than the fact that already in the 24 hours or so since this, the, the letter was published to Harper's, quite a number of people on it have already been, if not cancelled, then at least coming under sustained fire for having signed the letter. Yes. By the way... Several it should be mentioned who are really not major figures. I can't even remember their names. One this morning said, I had no idea that people I disagreed with like David Frum were going to be other signatories, or I wouldn't have signed. In a letter ostensibly saying, we've had enough of this whole guilt by association, cancel thing. (laughs) I had no idea I was going to be with those guys in the signing process.
0: Yes. As ever, there's always a level further down in the inferno, isn't there? Yes. Well, Kerry Greenish, I believe, has said she didn't endorse it because of the people she was on there with By the way, they're, 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 and has had her name removed from the letter. It, it has to be mentioned this is a
1: monodirectional problem. Uh, Noam Chomsky was one of the signatures, signatories of that letter. I'm second to none in my contempt for Noam Chomsky but if I discovered that my name was on a letter with him it would bother me not a jot unless it was a letter about Cambodian genocide <laughs> uh, uh, in which case I would be concerned about somebody who cover that over being on it but anyway but my point is this is a left right problem not a right left one i can think of almost nobody identified or self-identified as being Mm. on the political right Mm. who would care if they had fixed their name to a letter signed also by leftists Mm. in the name of free speech for instance it's people on the left getting into trouble with their peers for being in letter-signing proximity to people on the right. Now, this brings Mm -hmm. us back once again to the fact this is a left-wing problem. The Mm -hmm. cancel culture thing, the war against free speech, free expression, this is not a right-wing problem. It is a left-wing problem. The left are the ones who cannot bear Mm -hmm. to be seen in the vicinity of people who disagree with them. I know David Frum a little bit. I, I like him. I disagree with him on lots of things. The idea that David Frum is the figure who would tip you over and have to make you take your name off a letter when you discover his name. like David Frum's a completely centrist Republican. Mm. If you can't bear to be on a letter with him, then, then there's no one, even a centimetre, to the right of the political centre who yeah. you can be
0: seen with. It's a very liberal list of people. Mm. That signed this letter. It's a pretty crappy list. Pretty. Cr- <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so it's a, there's, sort of,
1: there's good people. There's Salman Rushdie. There's, it's
0: you know, a JK combination of, of literary lefties with a sort of conscience about free speech and mm. never Trumpers and people like yeah. that. And they're trying to sort of form to sort of almost beg the liberal world in which mm. they exist to let them be, uh, but yeah. the liberal world isn't keen to hear it. It's very hard
1: to know how you beg for your life from ignoramuses who are not going to read you anyway. <laughs> The problem we're dealing with here is incredible ignorance on behalf of people fueled up on moral certainty. We're talking here about people who who feel they shouldn't work at a publishing house that publishes the Ichabog. Yeah. <laughs> As I stressed in the magazine the other week, the people who were opposed to Hachette publishing J.K. Rowling's next children's book and who Threatened down tools and not work on the Ichabog. This is the level we're dealing with here. You cannot be seriously threatened by working in a publishing house that might publish the Ichabog. You can't seriously be well and think that you have the right to rampage through literary history and tear out texts
0: you haven't read. You can't be well. But at the same time, maybe they are perfectly well because they know they won't be fired because of it, which is what you suggested in your piece that they should be. Of course they should
1: be fired. Somebody who can't work on a book at a publishing house is not any use to anyone. Somebody who is terrified by a children's book oughtn't to be out in public. (laughs) This is a level of uselessness. An employer can't deal with people like this. They can't work. They won't work. And the problem is that the bosses, in so many cases, have allowed this to continue. When there was a walkout in New York at... It was also at Hachette, wasn't it, over Woody Allen's memoir. Yeah. That was a very good time to fire everyone who walked out. This is what should have happened over the people who signed the letter to Hachette's bosses about the Ichabog of J.K. Rowling. The next letter they received should have been the P-45. These people consistently create the weather because people senior to them are willing to give in. It's exceptionally hard in a culture to know what to do when the least educated people rampage around saying educate yourself to everybody else who knows more than them.
0: Mm. Well, I thought with the Harper's letter, the signatory who got it the worst was Matthew Iglesias, who works for mm. a website, an achingly woke mm. website called Vox, And a trans critic at Vox uh, wrote to her editors, insisting that she did not want him to be fired or punished or reprimanded, but she just wanted her editors to know that she didn't feel comfortable. And this was widely circulated.
1: What is this comfortable thing?
0: I suppose that's safetyism, isn't it?
1: Yeah, what is comfort? Since when was it in any way useful criteria for the real world? Almost everything in life apart from a warm sofa, is uncomfortable. <laughs> By the way, in ideas and in writing, there's nothing bad about being made to feel uncomfortable. The idea that books, a primary priority in the book world, should be just making sure nobody feels any discomfort at any point. It's not there. It's not there in the description. It's not the purpose. And I think what it really is, is, is this endless... Not even passive-aggressive, but aggressive-aggressive tone in which people are talking.
0: But it is sort of passive-aggressive because in their heads they don't think they're being aggressive. I read that I the trans critic's that. tweets, and she repeatedly said, "You know, I like Matt. I don't want him to be fired." But that's I've a just, very aggressive thing. But to say. I've just publicly, yes, that's a very aggressive under thing to say.
1: No, no, I think these people know exactly what they're doing. You think it's tactical? Uh, I think it's deeply cynical. I think they want to win. And they know how to win in this era. And how you win in this era is to say that you feel uncomfortable. How you win in this era is to say that you're feeling vulnerable. These people are not vulnerable, they're acting as bullies. Yes. They're acting as bullies, pretending that they are the bullied. J.K. Rowling isn't going around killing trans people. I mean, there have been people online pretending that in recent days, but she's expressing her opinion. She's bullied nobody. And these people pretending that they are acting in the name of of the good rampage around is because they want to win they know that in this era you win fastest by claiming to be the most victimized person in the room
0: it goes on to what a lot of people say which is that these people who do this form of sort of accusing they are doing exactly what they are accusing others of doing all the time
1: let's get to the, the absolute root of this literature and writing cannot happen under these circumstances Thinking cannot happen under these circumstances. So, if you are interested in comfort and in safety, go and do something else. Do not play around in the arena of ideas. Do not get involved in politics. Do not get involved in journalism. Do not try to write books or work anywhere near books. Work in maybe an animal rescue centre or (laughs) a cat home or... Helping. My, my
0: wife has worked in animal rescue. It's very discomforting. I don't think it's a good. No, I, <laughs> I think it be a bad place. Again, it
1: could be for some people. It might be the worst place. <laughs> I don't know. Um, work in a cushion factory or do anything else. Don't work in ideas and don't act as some
0: weird mute button. Once you get there. Or well, maybe there's just nowhere for you. I mean, if you're not willing yes. to be a grown-up, you're not going to be able to work. Anymore.
1: Well, well, yeah. The fragility that is being expressed here. If we took it seriously, these people should not be out in society. This is really important because one of the things about the mental health issue is we don't know exactly where the boundaries of it are. Mm. This is causing huge problems in our societies. But once you acknowledge, for instance, that PTSD exists, there are things you can do to make sure that if you do suffer from it, you avoid it and you can be helped. There is no way to arrange life around people who claim that everything in the world gives them PTSD. We can't arrange society around these people. Well, let's bring it back to Trump,
0: because... Talking of PTSD (laughs) and trauma. (laughs) It It seems to me that the Republicans, certainly the Trump campaign, want to make cancel culture an election issue. Mm. They think there are votes in it. How many votes do you think there are in it, or how much do you think this is a major obsession for people like you and me? I think that the
1: war on the American republic's origins is something with a lot of votes in it. Mm. I have no idea exactly how many but I don't think that a situation where a candidate for the vice presidency doesn't know whether you should pull down George Washington statues or not (laughs) is a winnable left. I don't see how it is. I suspect that most of America
0: still has some fondness for the
1: American ideal.
0: Well that's interesting project. That's interesting for Biden because a lot of Centrists in the Democrat Party are saying Biden should lean against this stuff, campaign no. against it to a certain extent and win some centre ground. It comes back to this point I make in the piece about the unravelling of it.
1: If Mount Rushmore is stolen, then all of America is stolen and what are we to do about it? If we take it as read that Columbus shouldn't have discovered America, <laughs> <laughs> which it seems to be the Emerging consensus big on, on the left. Big mistake. If only he'd have stayed at home. <laughs> if we are seriously to see all of American history only through one lens, then this extraordinary quarter of a millennial project is over, because it's there's nothing remarkable about it, there's nothing about it that should remain. My suspicion is that most Americans aren't on board for that. That doesn't necessarily mean, however, that they're willing to allow Donald Trump to be the President and the person who pushes back against that. Mm. And I suspect many of them will feel great resentment about the idea of having to
0: put the Republic's future in his hands for a second term. Thank you very much, Douglas. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast. At spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite.